so you remember like a few weeks ago, and I mentioned a thing about my lunchbox, about never having a Spider-Man lunchbox? I have been given four Spider-Man lunchboxes since then, <laughs> which is awesome. It's great. So if you gave me one, thank you. One of them, we don't know who it came from. It was sitting out here in a, in a it looked like a bomb. It was sitting out here in a package out front, and we're like, should we touch it? Should we call the bomb skull? What the heck's going on? Right? It was a Spider-Man lunchbox. So thanks. Uh, one of them someone gave me was from 1976, like an original with a thermos in it. It was amazing. Yeah. So if you're one of the ones that gave me the other ones, what I've been doing with them, hope this isn't offensive to you, uh, but I've been taking all my tie-downs I keep in my truck, and I've been putting them in them and sliding them under the back seat so they're where they're supposed to be. Because, you know, it's like Spider-Man. Right? But it's tie-downs, so it's... Makes sense to me. So thank you. <laughs> The first only announcement I have for you is that uh, we Easter's coming up, so we will have a Good Friday service, which is a week from next Friday. It's at 7 p.m. It looks like at this point we will have child care for 0 to 5. We normally don't at Good Friday, uh, but we will from 0 to 5. Uh, everybody else will kind of be in here together. I'm going to warn you up front, if you have you know kids that get bored easily, they'll probably get bored in the midst of it. Uh, and like all Good Fridays, just to give you a heads up, Good Friday is for people who call themselves followers of Jesus, and so I'm not going to explain a lot of different metaphors than I normally do, and sometimes Good Fridays are really, really heavy. This one is not going to be really heavy. Sometimes they're a lot of fun, like last year and the whole Seder meal. Uh, This year is going to kind of be in the middle of that, but I am going to give you something that is probably going to make you feel a little uncomfortable if you haven't prayed for somebody else before. Just throwing a heads up. And also, uh, I was going to warn you that it's not gluten-free, but we are bringing a gluten-free option in case you are one of those people who can't have gluten we are doing a gluten-free option. You have what is I you know what I'm talking about? That's okay. It's all part of the woo, what's Good Friday about? Gluten? We're gonna figure it out, all right? Uh, and then for Easter, we have a 6 p.m. on Saturday night Easter service. And then we have the three normal ones on Sunday morning at 8.15, 9.30, and 11. Uh, all the ones, I think we're going to have child care at all of those. Right, anybody? Yes? We have child care at all of those. I'm getting the yes. Okay, there you go. We have child care at every single one of those. So you're welcome to come to anyone. If you're going to help out on, a, on Sunday morning or maybe felt like I can't help out because uh, I want to go to service, well, you can still come to service on Saturday night. That's kind of what Saturday nights is for. A lot of the people who are helping out out and working and still wanting to go to the Easter service. Saturday night's also really fun because usually at some point we do something that messes it all up because it's practice. <laughs> so if you want to come to the like, that's, anyway, I think that's all I got for Easter. So, hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about, some questions to reflect on about what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who reverentially come before you and understand better who you are, that we would understand your grace and your love and the goodness so bestowed upon us, but we'd also come to a place where we honor and love and respect all that you are, that you would be the focus of who gets the glory 
for, throughout and for our lives. And that in that, you, we would understand that you are a God who bestows so much goodness upon us. And that we would live the way that you call us to because we understand better who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series, the book of Ecclesiastes. This is week 13. Uh, Ecclesiastes is written by an old king that gets to the end of his life, and yet he lived it in such a way that he got everything he ever dreamed and everything he wanted and found out it doesn't fulfill. And so Solomon is coming to the understanding that everything and everyone at some point is going to let us down, whether it's friends or family or coworkers or whoever. And when those things happen, it leaves this bitter taste in our mouth. And we're wondering, why didn't this satisfy or why didn't these people fulfill or why didn't this thing do what it was supposed to? But he's always trying to bring us back to the understanding that we are also the same type of people who have let other people down as well. We are also ones who haven't followed through. We are those with the myriad of issues just like everybody else. And part of that is why I think Solomon writes the way he does. He wants us to see the things that he does. So no matter where we look in life, we'll understand there's a bug in the system somewhere. And that bug is typically us. Okay, That bug is us. Solomon knows we are apt to ignore that bug and focus on some little thing in our life and think, if I could just get that thing, I will have it. I'll be fulfilled. Everything will come together and I'll find satisfaction. And yet, when things come up in our lives that don't bring satisfaction that we thought that they were, we are always surprised. Like, why didn't I thought it was going to? Solomon is trying to say that we have got everything backwards. It's not the way it is. And what he's showing us is that there's a deep set of longing inside of us and part of that is for satisfaction but these longings we have go beyond the scope of this life and they have and we have this innate hunger for justice and for comfort and life and companionship and stable relationships and so what Solomon does throughout Ecclesiastes is he will highlight every single one of those and keep coming back to every single one of those to show us that our lives are not meant to be built upon those things that they're built upon a relationship with God first and when they're built a relationship on God first then all those things actually can be added to on top of the goodness that God brings, but they're never meant to give us our satisfaction on their own. He keeps bringing back to show us all of this stuff because the point of life and everything is who Jesus is. And we are typically making gods out of everything in our lives, and yet those things never, ever fulfill. So Solomon is kind of trying to show us these things as he walks through this and shows that all fulfillment in the end is going to come from Jesus himself and who he is. Uh, Jesus is really the answer to all these questions in two ways. Uh, number one, uh, Jesus is the one who created us, and he is the one and when we're in relationship with him provides the answer to all of our longings. And secondly, he's the answer because he has been in places where he has lived through injustice and pain and oppression and loneliness and the hollowness of work and the fickleness of other people like with his disciples and the crowds around him and so we come to him he rescues he saves he draws us back into relationship with himself but he also understands the places we've been and how we have felt and the things that we have gone through because of the depths of his own experience now today we're going to come to a section in ecclesiastes that's about worship and about vows to or for or in front of god it's a little heavy uh, but sometimes it's okay to be heavy i'd say a lot of times it's okay to be heavy when solomon talks about the context for uh worship in here this is going to be the context of what we call the temple the temple it's not like a church building in israel there are a lot of local synagogues where people would gather 
but there was only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. The temple was built to a specific design that was given by God, because our God is an architect. Just look at the cosmos around us. And so Solomon oversees the construction of God's temple. It took 153,600 men seven years to build the temple. And in the end, it will be commissioned in prayer and sacrifice, showing that Jesus would one day come and die for our sins. If you want to read 2 Chronicles 1-7, through it kind of shows this. But through this process, in the end, uh, God comes down in smoke and fire. He consumes the sacrifice, and he goes into the temple. Now, in this temple, there were different courts. There's what's called the court of the Gentiles. This is where most of us would go, and we hear about God and who he was, and we'd be ministered to in that place. There's a place called the court of the men, and the men would go there and do men things. And then there's the court of the women where the women would go and do women's stuff. There's like sections of alms for the poor. But in the middle of all of this, uh, there's this place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The high priest would go in there once a year. And everybody else is separated by degrees from this most holy place because it's the idea that God is holy. In him, there is no sin. There is no darkness. And we have to be careful how we approach him. Now, after Jesus dies and rises from the grave, the most amazing thing is that there's a curtain that separates that area from every other place in the temple. That curtain gets torn from top to bottom from God to us, showing that God goes out, we get to go into the presence of God, and everything then changes. But here in this place, Solomon is talking about the understanding of the temple. That curtain is really still there. And what he talks about in this is when we go to worship God, there are two things we should be aware of. The first one is worship the right God, and the second one is worship the right way. During this time that Solomon was alive, so unlike our day, there were many religions in the world. Okay, fell flat first service too, by the way, just letting you know. Uh, and the, in these other religions, they practiced child sacrifice. Uh, they would practice temple prostitution, where you'd go to a temple, and there'd be prostitutes in the temple as, as part of their worship service. Uh, people think, oh, we don't do that today. We still do that today. We just call it different things because we all worship at the altar of convenience. But God created us to be worshipers, and it shows that we will, in the end, worship something. The question is, what will we worship? Uh, some guys worship their athleticism or the athleticism of their favorite sports team or something they adore. Some people worship nature. Some people worship music, and so some people worship worship. God tells us we're going to worship, but we need to worship him, or our lives under the sun will become meaningless. We'll never find satisfaction. So what is worship? Well, worship technically is a God word life of respect and devotion towards God. Uh, the word for worship comes from this Latin word and it means worthship. Like worship can actually be said worthship. Ship, that God is worthy of everything. He's the most worthy part of our lives. We love him. We serve him above all else. So worship is knowing who God is and then responding to him. So if you have a Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 because that's where we're going to be. And what Solomon does what we look at today, he's going to start to talk about a fool who goes into the temple to worship God. And he will show that it is possible to go to worship every week in some type of church setting and still be a fool who never learns anything. And he will start off by telling us that we need to be a people who are silent and listen. And this is important because we feel like all of our lives are lived 167 hours outside of this room and that we come here in a church building and it's, and it's different. It's one hour where we're going to give things to God and we show up and if we have requests, we're going to tell God all the things that we want, how he needs to help us and what God needs to do. And yet we are never silent. We are never listening to the things that God wants to say to us. And many times we feel like I put in my time, I did my hour, everything's great and we live however we want the rest of the week. 
And that's not how it was meant to be. This is a place that's supposed to be corporate gathering, coming together. That is the culmination of our week. That it's, it's not the beginning. It's like the, the culmination, coming together, worshiping him, and resetting our lives to who he is. So I'm going to give you six principles for worship that Solomon gives throughout this. This isn't legalism or anything like that. What this is, is kind of some seriousness that sometimes we all need. So, Number one, here we go. Reverence for God's presence. Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Solomon is saying that the worship of God is a serious matter. It is meant to be undertaken with thoughtfulness and respect for God. Now, this is hard for us because we live in a culture that doesn't really respect or honor much. Like when a woman used to walk into the room, men would stand up as a sign of respect. We don't do that anymore. And if men did, some women would be offended that men stood up. So it's like, wait, guys are like, I don't know what to do, right? It's, it's crazy. We don't know what to do with all this. But people used to respect teachers and coaches and firefighters and police officers and the office of the President of the United States, if you didn't respect the president, you still respected the office, but there's not much of that anymore anywhere. And that's how we then start to begin to approach God himself. Uh, we treat God like this movie called Dogma. Uh, there's this, they have this thing, we're going to unveil, here's our new thing, it's Buddy Christ, and Jesus is like, right? He's Buddy Jesus. And that's how we start to talk about Jesus. Kids are taught to give their lives to Jesus as their forever friend. And yes, Jesus does call us his friends. He does do that. We talked about that last week. But he is also God, and he deserves our respect and our worship. He's not just our forever friend. He is Savior, Redeemer, Rescuer, and Lord God Almighty. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your Tonto, and you're the Lone Ranger running around when you get into trouble. You're like, oh, Tonto, where are you? Come and help me out. That's not who Jesus is. He is Lord God Almighty. And we diminish him and make him so like us. And when we do that, we ascribe all these things to him. That's not who he is. It's like, oh, well, Jesus failed. He didn't follow through on the things I wanted. And we so diminish him. And we have to understand who he really is. We approach him with awe and respect. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 8, and 9, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adore themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Let me put this in our vernacular, okay? What he's saying is worship includes what we do. It includes our attitudes. It includes the words that we say, how we treat one another, how we dress, if we cuss someone out or not. It's not just seriousness on a Sunday morning for as long as you've got gas in your tank to listen to Aaron or hear Sean sing some songs. He says what you do with your hands and what you do with your attitude and how you dress, it's all about reverential living. We were not hypocrites. We, we guard our steps because worship really does has more to do with what goes on outside these walls than what goes on inside these walls. And a lot of times, again, people go to church for like an hour and they think they can live like they don't know Jesus the rest of the week. And that's not how it's supposed to be. The second thing is receptiveness to God's word. He goes on and he says, to draw near to listen. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen. Now, many people today think when we say the word worship, it's only music. Like if a church were to hire a worship pastor, what does the worship pastor do? Music. That's what they do. And so we talk about worship just being music. Now, worship includes music and it includes singing, but it's also our life and listening to the teachings as God speaks to us through different things. Like you right now, and are or could be worshiping. You might say, I'm not doing anything, but we're listening. 
We want to hear the things that God is saying to us. At Element, we pray all the time that God would speak to us, that God would use imperfect vessels like all of us to speak to one another. And on a Sunday morning, that God would use this imperfect person up here to maybe impart wisdom to you because God's Spirit moves and works. And when we gather with one another in gospel community and in friendships, we want God to be speaking to one another because it's all meant to be worship. He says, guard your steps and listen. We have to listen to God because what God says is highly practical. In the scriptures, we have to understand that God teaches us what to do with our pots and our pans and our homes and our genitals and our credit cards. And if you ever go to another church somewhere, I would pray that you go to one that teaches the Bible. You must find a place that is God-centered, not man-centered, where worship includes listening to God's word and prayer and communion and songs and fellowship and joy and somberness and parties and reflection. We believe that when the church gathers, there should be the reading of Scripture. There should be sermons that explain what the Scriptures are actually talking about, not just what cultural winds dictate. There are movements today that are trying to take either sermons out of churches completely or to get them down under 20 minutes. That's never going to happen because I'm long-winded, you know, and I'm not going to apologize for it. And, and I don't freak out like that because I think I'm going to lose my job because my job consists of a lot more than just this right here. But I freak out because our culture doesn't want to be taught. We don't want to learn. People today want 20-minute messages as, as entertainment. Five points to a better you. Five points to be blessed. Five points to be happy. And then send you out to live however you want. When my wife and I lived in Arizona, we either found a church that had great music and terrible preaching or terrible music and okay preaching. And we settled on a church that had okay preaching. Maybe that's here. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? Okay preaching. And, and it had an off-tune piano and, and, a, and an even more off-tune lady singing from, from said piano. But the preacher, even though he wasn't the greatest, he did open the scriptures. And he taught from the scriptures. And we did that because we believe we need to listen to what God says. Now, at Element, we do occasionally do a topical series of some sort. But when we open the scriptures, we talk about verses that are in there because we want to hear what the Bible says. Because it's not just in the end about theology. It's about listening to the things that God says in his word. Uh, Verse by verse, when you go through things like that, it makes you study things most people want to skip. I mean, you think seriously, like this sermon, Idiots in Worship Part 1, is like a grower or a winner for a church? Not so much, right? Sometimes when you go verse by verse, you hit things that that I don't want to talk about, that I don't want to deal with. But our God is a Father who's trying to love and correct us. So we listen to things that He says, because we have a God who cares, and a God who speaks, and He's interested in our life. And He speaks because He loves us. And Solomon says, if we are wise, we'll listen to what He says. Number three, returning or repenting from foolishness. The the word repent means literally to return. Uh, Chapter 5 again, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. As Solomon says, fools are marked by two things. First off, they don't understand, and worship includes what you do during your whole day, not just here, and also they don't listen. There's no understanding and no listening, and they don't even know because they don't listen that what they're doing sometimes is wrong because they don't listen or watch their life. Wise people are those who listen and return to who God is calling us to be. We repent. And when it says there that sacrifice of fools, it means empty sacrifice. It doesn't mean that these people aren't sacrificing. It doesn't mean that at all. It means they're missing the meaning. Because the meaning behind all the rituals that God required was expressed by this word called hear. That word hear, it meant we listen. 
And when we listen, it changes us. And we live more like God calls us to live. We're listening and our lives change. We begin to obey. This goes to the idea of drawing near, which means that we have intimacy between God and us. Those that go to worship God in a wise way grow in their intimacy with who he is. David Hubbard says this, The sacrifices were the means by which God's people were to declare their total dependence on God. Listening, hearing, paying attention to God then was the essential requirement if the sacrifices were to have any meaning. I would say any meaning at all. Number four, honest prayers. Honest prayers. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. See, finally got out of that verse 1. Here we go. (laughs) Uh, Be be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For for with dreams come with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Now, in the context of Solomon saying this, this is referring to vows here in the temple before God. And our vernacular, I think, relates to the idea of prayer. Uh, Keep your spot in Ecclesiastes 5, but flip open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. Sometimes people say, is there a wrong way to pray? And really, I think the best answer to that is is no. If you're praying, it's a good thing. But Jesus really says there is a couple ways that we shouldn't go about prayer. Uh, He tells us not to babble like people who don't know God. That's that's what he says. Uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. He says this. When you pray... so. It's a good thing. He's assuming we're praying, so that's good. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, he's not saying you shouldn't pray in front of other people, but he says the reason they're doing it is to be seen in front of other people. He says, truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, don't be overly righteous in how you approach God in front of other people. You must understand that praying doesn't make you any better than someone else. It can show that we love and care about who God is, but it doesn't make us better than anybody else. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. This means to stammer, repeat the same things over and over. Uh, The NIV will translate this as babbling, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. So empty phrases and many words. He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray them like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So when you pray, he says, don't pray like the hypocrites who think they're heard because they have a lot of words. Oh, Lord God, oh, dear God, oh, dear God, and they never say anything, just say this thing over and over and over. Jesus says God is a father. We go to him and we talk to him like a father because God knows what we need. Now, the word empty phrases is this word babbling. It's this word called batalageo. And it comes from this batos, which means to stammer, logos, which means word. So you're just stammering these words out. You're not really saying anything. Many words is this word called polylogia, and it rhymes with diarrhea and... It's funny because actually a lot of commentators and scholars will point that out. It's like diarrhea of the mouth. We're just saying all these things, like pollu as the idea of pollution, right? And we're just throwing all these words out there. Jesus says, don't battle legeo, don't paralugia. Just say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, you must remember that the real God's posture towards you is one of favor and one of blessing and goodness and grace and generosity. Our God wants to give us what we truly need. Jesus says, you pray to God as a father that we are loved children, and that should change how we pray. I mean, seriously, I think, I think the reason some people don't pray is they don't understand who God is. Like, I know somebody who doesn't like to pray because they see God as a big, mean ogre, and they got to get their prayers right. If you have kids or ever had kids or can imagine having kids, okay, it, just let your imagination go out there. If, if you had a kid and they were going through something in their life and they didn't know what to do and they're kind of struggling with this, wouldn't you want them to come and talk to you about it? Yes, we do. God's posture towards us is as a father. 
And too often we see him as, oh, I've got to get this right. I've got to say it right. And God's like, come to me. Talk to me. Let's deal with this together. Let's talk about this together. I don't know if you guys are like, you had one of those crazy uncles who show up on holidays and they ask them to pray over the meal and like, dear God, we beseech thee for thy blessing upon thine provision that you have so provided for us today. And you're like, what? Does God speak better in King James? Like, what's going on here? I don't understand all this. No, God is a loving father and he wants us to talk to him in a certain way, just presenting our request before him because he is good and loves us. When I was six years old, my dad had this VW van. I called it a death trap. And he was driving us around one time. We got somewhere. We got out. And he goes to shut that big old side door. It wasn't like the new ones with safety contraptions. It's just this big metal door. Kaboom! And I had my finger in it. And I'm like, ah! I didn't go, Father, I beseech thou to come and take my finger out of... I'm just like, ow! And my dad wasn't like, you left a dangling participle. You have to have more beseeches than that. No. He goes, get out of the way. And he opens the door because that's what dads do. That's what they do. And we cry out to our Father because He loves us. Does that make a little more sense? If you see God like that, it's going to change who we, it's going to change how we pray. It's going to change if we even pray because that's who He is. So the disciples go to Jesus and they go, teach us how to pray. And what does Jesus do? He says, okay. He goes, God, you are holy and you are good and we love you. And we ask that you would bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, that you would change us and use us so that we'd be those who show everybody who you are, that your will be done in our lives. And we thank you for providing for us every day for the things that we need because you are good. And so continue to lead us and guide us into places where we forgive others because we understand the forgiveness that you have first given to us. That's what he says. Number five, unwavering vows. Chapter five, verses four through six of Ecclesiastes. So go back there. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? I'm going to explain what this means, okay? Because worship includes not only hearing from God, but at times in our lives, like, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore, God. I'm going to move this direction. I'm going to love you. I'm going to follow you. It binds us sometimes to obedience. In the cultural perspective of the temple, the idea behind these words about bowing something in the temple before God is usually this monetary gift or a livestock or something like that. It's as you begin to understand what God has done and the goodness towards you, you give back. Uh, not because you're trying to get something from God or anything like that. You're just honoring him. And so what these vows were is if you're in the temple and there's like some feast coming up at some point, many times you would say like, I'm going to give three cows for this big feast. So everybody can gather together, have a big party together to worship God. And then at the appointed time when that feast was coming, a messenger from the temple would show up and he would say, hey, can I have the three cows? And this is why it says, do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now, I say this a lot, and many things in the Bible are not written directly to us, but I believe that they are written for us. And this made sense in the Jewish context of the day, and I think it can make sense for us as well. Many times in our lives, we will do something dumb, and God's Spirit will convict our hearts, and and we'll say, God, I'm going to stop doing that thing. But sometimes, in a moment of crisis, people do crazy stuff. And they start to say dumb things and they start to barter with God. Like maybe some dude and his girlfriend are fooling around and someone, usually the girl, might think that they're pregnant, right, in the midst of that. And they get sad and humorous at the same time of what starts to take place in this because people start praying really big. I mean really big. It's like I will, we will read Leviticus and I will, we will give you 
10, 5, 90% of our income. We will never touch each other again. We're going to be missionaries. We're going to get some disease for you. God, just don't let her be pregnant, please. I know someone who got busted at work for being on the Internet. They're not supposed to be on the Internet at work. And they thought they were going to get fired. And they come to me. And so we sat. We talked about it. They're very contrite, very sad about it. We prayed about it. And he's like, dear God, I will never look at Internet at work again. I promise. Right? And this happens like you need a debt situations. Or how am I going to pay my mortgage next month? We start bartering all these things with God. And if God answers in a favorable way, many times we don't follow through. That's what happens. Like, uh, people do touch each other again. Like, oh, thank you, she's not pregnant. And you got your hands all over each other again. Or like my friend who got busted at work being on the Internet. He got on the Internet again just a couple months later and got busted again for the same thing. And think, think, what he says is you've got to think about what you say. Think about what you say before you say it, before you make all these crazy vows, especially before God. That's what he's saying. I have seen some guys try to give God the craziest things just to get a wife. It's like sometimes, you know, guys realize they're getting older, their shelf life's getting shorter, their hair stops growing off their head and starts coming out their ears, and like, i got to do something about this. And they say, God, God, just bring me a wife. I will love her. I'll read the Bible with her. I'll pray with her. Meanwhile, at the same time now when they're saying this, they're looking at porn, not exercising, not reading their Bible, and it's all foolishness. He says, if you vow, don't do it in a moment of haste. Think about it. A couple years ago, Element did this thing called Planting Roots. It was about having Element find a permanent home in the Santa Maria Valley. And what we did is the leadership kind of got behind this idea of what we were doing, and we invited everybody else to come along with us. And we met with every single gospel community. We had dinners together with other people around us. We wanted everybody to know where we were going. And we handed people these, these little cards that said, hey, do you want to pledge? Do you want to be part of this? And we didn't just hand it out and say, fill it out and turn it back in. We gave people a month to do it, to think about it, because we didn't want any manipulation. We wanted people to say, God, what do you want me to do above and beyond my normal giving to if I even want to have, maybe I want Element to go away. You know, if I want Element to have a permanent home, what do you want to do? And I'm just, that might happen again in a couple more years here with this property. But I just, and people did and they came back and they, and they made these pledges and it was above and beyond anything we ever imagined. It was crazy, but people were able to think about it before making a pledge, and that's what he's saying. Too many people are like a guy and a girl, they've been dating for two weeks, and a guy looks over dinner at a girl and he's all, I love you. What you have to understand, guys, is that's a vow. Ladies, if a guy says he loves you, is that a vow? Yes. Yes, it's a vow. So we've got to be careful. So vows would include like marriage vows and promises we make and church membership or giving pledges. In our culture, someone's, someone's idea of a vow is not held that highly. That's why we have contracts and lawyers and guns and jails. Solomon says we must cautiously make our vows, especially if we make one before God, because God knows our hearts and God knows who we are. Like, what's that old song? Wise men say only fools rush in. It's so true. And we do. We rush into friendships and relationships and love and all these things. And when Solomon says, it's better many times to not say anything than to say something and not do it. At Element, we do not do a lot of altar calls because I am not into emotionalism. We do the majority of our songs after the message and not before because I never want to wind you up and send you out. I want you to have time to think about the things that God is doing, the things that God is saying. I never want to wind you up and send you away. Uh, number six, and see, I am, I am going to vow to get to the end of this message at some point. Okay, number six, uh, realistic expectations, chapter five, verse seven. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Um, th- this is the idea that sometimes we have these big dreams and we never follow through. People uh, come to Element, I can't tell you how often, they get really excited after church service. They're like, they're like I am going to be a missionary. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to go, and we never see them again. 
Uh, sometimes people show up and like we have some swag like hats with the element logo because we think it's cool and people like it, so we have some. Like we have people go back, they'll buy the hat, grab the free Bible, get the sticker, right, and you never see them again. I was in um, I was in Costco a couple months ago. And uh, I'm usually a friendly guy. And there's someone in front of me in line. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? Just talking. Hey. And the guy looks at me and he's all, I can't believe you remember me. And I'm like, because ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and he's all, man, we were at Element three years ago. That's our church. We're going to come back. We'll see you this weekend. <laughs> nope. But, you know, it's, it's that thing. It happens all the time. We get so excited. We make all these vows. We never follow through. NIV says it like this, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. It's all this dreaming and not doing. Following God, it, it's, it's a thing where it takes time, and I think it takes prayer and the bowing of a life. Like, here's my proverb for this. I wrote this. It's better to walk humbly and prayerfully with God than to have big dreams. I think it's simply better to live our lives with him day by day by day than to have all these big dreams of what we'll do. Because it's not bad to have a vision for what the future is going to hold, but we walk humbly day by day with him. So Solomon concludes all of this with chapter 5, verse 7, but God is the one you must fear. Uh, the NIV says it like this, therefore stand in awe of God, because that's really what it means there, to fear and reverence for who he is. And this means that many times it's foolish people who will come to worship God and think worship is all about them. It is my dream and my vision and my destiny and my plan, and God, you need to do what I want you to do. And that's foolishness, because worship begins and ends with who God is. Worship is who he is, standing in awe of God. And yet so often today what we will do is we will talk about how good we are and not how good God is. We'll talk about not standing in awe of God, God, but standing in awe of all of our own potential. Rather than asking, hey, did this thing please God with our lives and our marriages and friendships, we ask, oh, did this thing please me? Today, and I think in a lot of church settings, it's very possible to go to a service that's supposed to worship God and not hear about God and hear only about you. Guys, i got to tell you, I believe one of the main points of gathering together in a church service is to reset us and refocus us and re-revel in the majesty of God. That's what we're here to do together, to encourage one another towards that. Because I think when we do, it's going to change how we live, uh, whether it's on our own when no one's around or around other people. It all comes out of knowing Jesus as Lord. And what I think Solomon is pointing us towards is what sin does in our lives is makes us these innate fools who talk too much and listen way too little, where we always have our own agenda for the things that God is supposed to do. This is why the scripture likens us to sheep. We're all like sheep. We all go straight. Bah, that's, that's who we are. This is why Jesus comes, God in the flesh, to rescue us. He is not some pagan deity that hangs out there in the cosmos and you have to babble on with all your prayers and make all these crazy vows. It's that Jesus sees our plight, that we have been separated from him because of our sin, and he comes to rescue us because it's what we need. He steps in to do it. We don't do that through morality or karma or long prayers or spirituality. God comes here because he's the one that knows that we need new life. He rescues us because we can never rescue ourselves. God comes as the answer to all that we need. And this is why we honor and worship him. He is involved in every aspect, every moment of our lives, whether we realize it or not. And here's the thing. Worship is about standing in awe of God. I think worship can exist in two forms, gathered together like this together, and then scattered where we are throughout the week and all the things that we do. And today what I would invite you to do, like Solomon, is take some time to examine what the things you have said before God. Uh, examine maybe your hypocrisy and your life and the, and the grace that God has bestowed upon it. We are going to go to this place of communion and giving, but we'll stand and sing as well. Uh, we're going to end with a really fast one. I call it 
rock and roll song. It's a rock and roll song, but I want to do that because I think sometimes when we sit too long in contemplation and reflection of our sin, we forget to stand in awe of God. And so I want to end in a place where it's loud and raucous so we understand what God's calling us to because we need to learn to move on. God is a God of commitment and grace and hope and love and covenant. And when God says he's going to do something, God follows through. And this is what the gospel shows us, that God promised to rescue us in the midst of our sin, and he follows through because that's what he does. God follows through. And when we come to communion and you break that cracker like his body was broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us that God is true to his commitment, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection to take away our sin and raise us, raise us to life should change then how we live in every aspect of our lives because everything comes out of that. How we worship, how we understand him, how we see him as father all comes out of the understanding of the good news of what Jesus did to rescue us. So I would encourage all of us today, when you come to communion, take a moment to remember and reflect. This is about who he is, not who we are. Yes, we have been given grace and rescue and redemption, but worship is standing in awe of who he is. The band's going to come up, as they do. I'd invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you've been in a place today, maybe this week, that your whole life, where you thought that coming to church is all about you and making you feel better and getting all the things that you thought that you wanted or needed, I would invite you to go and pray with them to understand that many times, actually all the time, God doesn't give us what we think we want. God gives us what we need. And what we need is Him. And many times in loving and worshiping him, God will steer us and take us through some crazy things in our lives to grow us, to understand better who he is and his grace and his goodness. But God is holy and true and right, and God has never once put you in a situation that he cannot somehow bring glory out of in the end. He can take everything in your life and bring it back to a place where he is glorified and we grow, and everything in the end can come to some type of beautiful restoration because of what God does. This is why we stand in awe of who he is and we worship him for who he is. Uh, There are offering boxes next to every door. We give because God has given so much to us, so giving is part of that worship. Uh, There's food outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Open that up. Talk to one another about some things in there. Like, in in what ways do we we see, you know, being reverential towards who God is in our lives? At what times and places do we push him aside so we can go do our own thing? And what are all the places where God continues to bring us back in again because of his hope, because of his love, because of his grace, because of his commitment to us? Because God loves us. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is a love of commitment and hope and restoration. And we should become a people who love and worship him, understanding what he has done to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of who we are and who you are and, and why in the end we would even come to a place like this to gather together to listen to the one imperfect person speak out of your word to other imperfect people, to sing songs led by imperfect people, that we would understand that all the places of our imperfection are places where your grace has stepped into and your blood has restored and you brought us back into relationship with who you are because you are the one who is holy 
and good. All of our imperfection just points out in the end how much we need you and the graciousness of who you are. So I ask that you begin to teach us to see you and talk to you as a father, to see ourselves as these dearly loved children who you intend to grow up into knowing who you are and that all that we are would change as we better understand who you are, that we would live in the great restoration that you have given us, that our hearts and minds and souls and all that we are would change because of all that you are that we would live out the great results of the gospel in our lives where we live out with hope and grace and goodness and first and foremost, worship of who you are, glory given to you as our great God, as our great rescuer because you are worthy of our worship. Teach us to worship you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.